Hello and welcome to episode number 35 of Making Media Now, a filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this installment of Making Media Now, I'll be speaking with Rainey Aronson Rath and Don Porter, the guiding forces behind a team of producers, designers, and technologists that created Unresolved, a new multi-platform storytelling project from PBS's Frontline. Unresolved tells the stories of unsolved racist killings in America, drawing on two years of reporting, thousands of documents, and dozens of interviews. The stories are shared through multiple media forms, including a podcast, a traveling installation, an interactive web experience, and later this year, a frontline documentary. Here's a trailer for the podcast, which dropped its first episode back in June. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Dante Wright. Before their names became as familiar to me as those of my family or friends, I often thought about the many lives, black like mine, cut short by racist violence. These names These moments go back much further in time, across my parents' lifetime, my grandparents, and beyond. Recently, I came across a list of more names. Some I recognized, most I did not. This list, written down, typed out, submitted to Congress, part of an initiative within the FBI. A list of women, men, children, most of them black, All deaths from decades ago. Crimes where justice went cold. Each name on the list, a story with an open question. They didn't die in Vietnam. They didn't die in Eastern Europe. They died right here in the United States. The blood of hundreds of innocent men and women is calling out to us. I've spent more than a year trying to understand how, why this list came about. There were questions as to whether or not this was about the people or the politics. I spoke with some of the officials behind the effort. As I communicated to the president, look, I'm not sure that our success rate is going to be very, very high. But nonetheless, we have an obligation to the families. Trying to understand what came of the promise that this list of names represents. I will always think that we could have done more, that there was just that one last interview that we should have gotten, one more door we should have knocked on. I've spoken to the people who were trying to fulfill a promise to those on that list before the U.S. government ever became involved. It was really one of those kind of situations where you you realize the clock was ticking. We need to look at all these other cases and help all these other people. And I've talked to the families of those killed who've never given up on finding the truth. I miss it. What would it be like if he had been here? Got abducted and beat to death. And nobody has ever been tried for it. When I got that call, I was on top of the world. Oh my goodness, my brother's not forgotten. I think that the men that did this will probably go to their graves thinking they got away with murder. What happens when the government tries to go back and right the wrongs of the past? And what would justice look like for these families? From Frontline, I'm James Edwards. And this is Unresolved. Rainey Aronson-Rath is the executive producer of Frontline, 
the long-running PBS series that has set the standard for investigative television journalism for nearly four decades. And Don Porter is the award-winning director of the film John Lewis, Good Trouble, and Gideon's Army. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a review, subscribe, and share. And now on to my conversation with Rainey Aronson-Rath and Don Porter. Hello and welcome to Making Media Now to Rainey Aronson-Rath and Don Porter. Rainey is the executive producer of the uh, PBS series Frontline, which is the gold standard of investigative journalism and in all of broadcast television. Don is a... Uh, award-winning producer of a number of films, including John Lewis, Good Trouble, and Gideon's Army. And they, in a, uh, speaking of armies, a small army of others have combined their forces to create a multimedia initiative called Unresolved, which is a, a major initiative which tells the story of lives cut short, and it examines a federal effort to investigate more than 150 cold case murders dating back to the civil rights era. So welcome to both of you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's really good to be here. Yes. And I'm going to I'm going to do my best not to talk over anybody and, <laughs> and to identify the speakers since we're doing this only uh, as an audio only uh, presentation. So let me start at the beginning. I'm curious, uh, uh, Rainey, if you could tell me how the idea for this project was brought to you and then how it was envisioned as such a multifaceted presentation. Sure. First of all, it's great to be here. I'm so glad I'm here with Don, too, because we really did launch this together and work on this together. So this started as um, a pitch from two producers on the frontline staff, Carla Boras and Michelle Meisner, who wanted to do actually a serialized multi-part documentary series on these cases, on the cases that they had identified as being um, cold cases from the civil rights era, definitely, um, you know, thought to be racially motivated killings and murders. And they saw it as a documentary series. As I learned more about it and I learned about the list that they're all on um, and I learned that there were over 150 cases. And by the way, that doesn't count all of the people, but this is just the people who are on the Emmett Till list that we investigate. I started to think about this more as a multi-platform effort. So every single case could be looked at as opposed to a narrative filmmaking and, and filmmaking in general, you have to choose three or four cases. It didn't seem fair and it hadn't been done before. So that's what really inspired me to think about this in a more multi-platform transmedia sense. So, you know, that's, that's one of the things at Frontline is that we can produce these stories in the right form for the journalism and uh, oftentimes you'll see us produce big documentaries. Other times you'll see us take on big efforts like this and climate change and other issues that we think are, you know, varied 
and deep and need context, um, you'll see us do it across all the forums that we produce in, which ranges from documentary to web interactives to, in this case, an installation and also a podcast. So that's why I thought the story was big enough to, to call for this level of an effort. Mm-hmm. And Dawn, um, how did you become involved in, in the project? Rainey called me up and described the project and I was really too busy to take it on. Uh, but she's very persuasive and, you know, it was really the opportunity to work with such stellar journalists. I'd worked, uh, at, at ABC news the same time Rainey was there. And, uh, I feel like our journalism, it, journalism is more needed than ever. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to be involved, um, in this, with this team, was really appealing. Um, I also really, really appreciated, um, as Rainey was describing, this project, this effort really called for this multimedia approach. And that's a very rare occurrence. So that's a rare opportunity. I think it allowed me as a filmmaker to stretch and grow, um, learn something new, which this morning I learned was good to prevent premature aging. Um, so, so there was just a lot that was, you know, that's one of the things I love about filmmaking is you're always learning and and trying, um, you know, but Rainey had, had uh, a lot of experience. She had gone to school for this. She had taken some courses in multimedia. So she really was able to set us off on a path. And then I think where I came in was, was really kind of helping the teams stay, um, you know, connected, but also allowing them to have have each have their own creative separate process. Sure. So that's what's so exciting about this is we have this story told in layers and layers and each form of the storytelling um, has its moment. So in the podcast, we get deep into these voices of, you know, family members and and personal reflections. Um, the the installation is very arrestingly beautiful mm-hmm. and it allows you to take in the beauty and the pain simultaneously. And then I like to think of the interactive as a, as a combination of each of those. So there's there's some there's a different way to access this information because of the different formats that we're using. Remember, Michael, the call with Dawn was such a great call. Like, I will just be clear about one thing. When we thought about bringing on an external executive producer, which I really, really felt was important on this bigger project, um, you know, there was like one choice in my mind and it was Dawn Porter. It was like, if we could get her... That's why I wanted to lead this. And beyond the practicality of making sure the teams are talking and that the journalism is the same and the forums speak to each other, Don also set a vision for the project that I think is really important. And the teams worked really closely with her on the creative vision that now stretches to a documentary you're releasing in the fall too. And so this was both creative and also practical, right? And that's like the joy of executive producing at this level is that you get to do both, right? And that she was the right person for it. So that's why I was persuasive because I just thought she was right. You know, she's the only person I wanted to do that. Right? <laughs> you had a person in mind and you were fortunate yeah, yeah. enough to land that person. And, yep. and just for the, for the benefit of our listeners, um, when we say multifaceted, there is a interactive website and it's, it's deeply interactive. There is a, uh, a podcast, a, a multi uh, episode podcast. There is an augmented reality 
installation, which I want to go into a little bit of detail. Uh, there is a, a curriculum uh, that could uh, be uh, interspersed into um, you know schools, obviously, and then in the fall, uh, Frontline will be presenting a multi-part uh, uh, film. Correct. Right. You got it. You're the first person who's actually understood all the elements in the right order. That's phenomenal. Thank well, you. Sure thing. So what's interesting about that is how do each of you uh, as executive producers step back and, and say, OK, how do we draw upon the strengths of each of these essentially uh, content delivery mechanisms and make sure that we we're we're not just repeating a story, uh, but we're we're actually uh, using the, the the means of communication uh, to greatest effect in each instance. I mean, I'll speak from the maker perspective. The way that we've done this in the past, and the way we're doing this now, is we actually hire people who are really, really, really good at the form they're producing in. So we don't expect, for example, a television documentary filmmaker to be able to create an augmented reality installation, right? So we went to the person that we felt was the top person in the field, who is Tamara Shogalu, who runs Auto Auto as well. She owns her own company and is the creative director because she's really the leader when it comes to installations and with, and also to web immersive um, interactives, right? So that was really what she knows how to create and make. And James Edwards is the producer of and the reporter on the podcast. And he's a podcast artist, frankly. He's a great storyteller for audio. And then Brad Lichtstein and Yuru Barishan are established and excellent filmmakers. So I think the key is to find the makers who really know how to make the form that they're producing in and directing in. And then the key for us and um, is really critical is that the journalism is central to every different form goes through the same process at Frontline, the same people, the same editors, the same executive producer in this case is Don. And all of those issues that we face on the fact checking side, the fairness side and on the vetting side are going through the same hands, the same people, the same thinking. And that's really critical to our success. So we don't have a podcast team that's overseen by another team. Mm-hmm. And that's why Frontline feels and looks and seems similar. It's because we're all thinking about it together. And, you know, no, nothing is too small for us to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. The other thing, and, and Don can maybe speak to that, but like, you know, she was involved in, in minute questions of fairness, but then also the vision of the whole project. And that's what I like about you know, doing this work together is super collaborative in that regard. Don, what was it about your experience having made the film on John Lewis um, that that perhaps fed your uh, approach to this project? You know, one of the things uh, that was so joyful about mm-hmm. working on a film about a person who's who had 60 years of advocacy and public engagement was understanding the lesson that I learned from John Lewis is that the work is never over. So John Lewis didn't leave the streets as an activist and go to Congress to sit there. He went and he reinvented himself, you know, as a congressman. But then during that time, he also continuously pointed out that the work was never done. So John Lewis introduced the Till Act, and that was something that we hadn't explored in the film. So it was such, I could 
completely understand this was exactly right down the middle for him in terms of his legislative priorities and something that he's so good at. John Lewis was really good at inspiring the imagination and and then leading that way. So you have the the Till Act, you have this um, you know aspirational idea, this list. And really what that's meant to do is spur further activity. Mm-hmm. And so he was quite a leader in that sense. And so I was very, very excited to um, kind of pick up the ball from him and run with it. You know, mm-hmm. he put the Till Act into into action. And then the frontline team, you know, working with the artists and also the reporters, the question was then what happened? The legislator did his part. Then, then what happened next? And and so to continuing that story felt it was a really satisfying exercise. So, how did you go about uh, deciding which of these stories to focus on? Uh, you know, the 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 number is more than one hundred and fifty cold cases that were that were labeled cold cases in many instances very prematurely in many instances, really without any investigation having taken place. How did you go about um, finding what what might feel like a representative sample of those? You know, um, that was really driven in large part um, by the form. So for the interactive, um, so first of all, the frontline research team is just spectacular. And so there was a lot of just good old fashioned reporting and groundwork done in investigating and just tracing the cases, what mm-hmm. happened with each of these names. And there's a really interesting exercise. You can kind of slice the data and sort the data in different ways. And so what that reporting revealed was how many cases were open and closed right away. Mm-hmm. That's an in- that's an interesting story. Um, we are visual artists, we are audio artists, and so we need to have you know, core of information and material. So there was a lot of investigation and reporting about what could we find? Where were the stories you could really sink into and where there was a real kind of arc to follow? Um, what did we have information about? But doing in doing that, in selecting those stories where we would go a little deeper because there were more resources, because there were more facts or family members available to talk, but never losing sight of the original goal, which is to have some reporting about each of these people. So none of these people would be left behind. Oh, that's um, wonderful. And so there's the, those stories are, you know, we may not have been able to find as much information about some of those cases, but but there is something about each and every person whose name appears on that list. And is the website, for instance, is that considered kind of a static piece of media or will that grow as, you know, as the uh, the podcast um, gains more traction and as the story itself uh, gains more traction via curriculum and the installation? I mean, we hope that this is an iterative story like this beginning in a way and um, that a lot of people came before us reporting on a lot of these cases and so this is just collecting all the stories in a very visible public regard but we're hoping it brings more stories to the forefront like we a lot of the stories that we told like one the, one of the most arresting and important stories was Alberta Jones right who's the first female prosecutor African-American prosecutor in Kentucky she's an incredible figure 
that most of us didn't know about. You know, it's telling her story in depth. But there are other people on the list that we want to be able to tell their stories more in depth too, as we learn more and report more. So the good news about Frontline is that we're we're a series, right? We're a news organization that publishes mostly in visual form, but we're going to keep reporting on this. Especially, we're hoping that this is account the accountability journalism leads the Department of Justice to look at these cases again, to consider these cases in the FBI as well. So we're hoping that this is the beginning and we'll keep covering it. Rainey, is this the most um, elaborate, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, initiative that that Frontline has uh, undertaken uh, in in terms of moving beyond just the linear film and maybe a, I know that you've had a, a vibrant web presence for for years, uh, but to to this extent where you're bringing in so many disparate media aspects. I think it's definitely the most ambitious. So I, we have done, you know, virtual reality before. We've done some augmented reality. And of course, we did Last Generation, which was a big climate change project um, based out of the Marshall Islands. Yep. But I think this is the first time Frontline has ever done such a multi-platform effort. And it was the first time that we thought a story called for it. So I think the flexibility we have at Frontline is to say this body of work needed to be seen. It needed to be lived. You know, Don and I have talked a lot about this idea of living journalism. Why is the insulation so powerful? It's because we saw this in New York where it was, you know, we saw people living it, breathing it, understanding it, saying people's names that they didn't know before, that they hadn't heard before. And also just hearing from the victims' families themselves for the first time. You know, uh, they had definitely, you know, wanted to have more attention for these stories, but the media hadn't either had the resources or hadn't paid attention yet. So there is such a a living feeling to this and something that Tamara just said yesterday on social media about this project really struck me that, you know, we think and she said personally, I think of the civil rights era as something in the past, but actually we're living it today. We're living the inequality today and we're still these stories, these murders have histories that then live on generationally in families. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, you anyone can understand that you don't need to be black to understand why a murder of your uncle, right, or your great uncle would reverberate for generations to come. Right. But if that story was never told, that story was never codified or investigated or looked at by the government. That's trauma. That is trauma that lasts for generations. And so we wanted to give life to those stories. So that's why this particular project called for that level of immersiveness. Um, And we're hoping that that then has the impact that we're all seeking, right? Is that journalism matters. Journalism reveals truths that then hopefully lead to change. How much was the timing of the kind of the the rollout of of this initiative influenced by contemporaneous events, particularly coming, you know, we're a year now after the killing of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests of particularly last summer and fall. Uh, Was that coincidence or was there um, a rationale behind that? Well, the reporting happened before, about a year and a half started before George Floyd was murdered. But I do think that um, if you listen to what Tamara said about it, you know, it resonated with her deeply. It always would have, she said. But 
when we approached her last summer and in the fall. And, you know, she speaks about how it was resonant for her. Um, and then the timing was Tribeca invited us to premiere. So the timing happened to be around Juneteenth, of course, but also, you know, the unfortunate anniversary. But that wasn't necessarily planned out. Don, given um, the extensive research that, you know, you had done into the, the civil rights era, and taking into account both the initiatives that are happening today and the perhaps pushback around those initiatives? Does it feel to you like history repeating itself? Do you more easily, based on your knowledge, arrive at at a sense of, of hope, knowing that incremental gain has taken place? Or does it ever feel like, when are we going to learn? I don't feel like, when are we ever going to learn? I do feel like there's there's a kind of conventional narrative that the civil rights era is just referring to the 1960s. And I think one of the things that is really important is to understand the longevity of these efforts. So, you know, the people on the Emmett Till list, some of them were murdered in the 1940s and the 1950s. I mean, those and and I think that there's a, a really striking benefit to understanding the longevity of efforts. They were murdered largely because of their activity. Some were attending civil rights meetings. Some were coming back from war and exercising their American rights. But understanding that the civil rights era is not confined to one particular time period, but there's a history there. Um, Excavating that history helps contextualize it. I actually find it very hopeful to see, you know, part of what led to the 1960s was all of the trauma that was happening in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And then, you know, if you can even back that up to the Red Summer in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. So 1970 to 1921. So, um, so I see uh, on a continuum, I find it strangely comforting to have this idea that there have there has always been resistance. And so we are kind of filling in some of the information. And that to me helps me say Black Lives Matter did not come out of the air. It was not a spontaneous, you know, birth. It is a a movement with a history. And this is the, you know, most prominent iteration, um, an example of that history. But we have always had this resistance movement and there a lot of progress has happened because of it. Think about integrating uh, the curriculum that comes out of this initiative, you know, into places of learning. Is there any concern these days around those forces that seem to be quite agitated about visiting any aspect of our history that's not laudatory? You know, one of the things that is such a benefit and why it was really important to me to work with journalists on this story is what we are describing is factual. There is not an emotional kind of hyping of events. There are no broad pronouncements. Everybody black was being murdered. There are these are the facts of this particular case. And then in some of the work that we're doing, contextualizing um, the facts around those examples. And I think that this is a really, really critical moment for us to be doing that factual, um, you know, pronouncements to Mm -hmm. be to be like 
publicizing those facts because it's a lot harder to say I don't want to teach my children actual history that is documented repeatedly in oral and written testimony you know where if you say critical race theory and most people don't understand what that is it's a it's lot harder it's a buzzword it's a lot easier to attack something that's that amorphous but i think it's it's people who say we want to understand our history the purpose of understanding our history so that we can see those patterns that have been negative we can see those patterns that don't fit within our shared social goals mm-hmm. and then we can avoid them and we can say if we're going in a direction that's going to lead to discrimination or to to marginalization there's another way we've been here before let's not make the same mistakes of the past so that's you know that's why history is important but that's why journalism is essential one thing i'll add to that michael is you know frontline and um is in 65 percent of the public schools already our curriculum so one of the things about like the work we do is we have always an educational mandate so curriculum is like front and center like we believe in teaching and so the teachers do use frontline as a tool and so this is just like a new form for them to teach in. And we've then added what we did that's really different here is that we added curriculum. So one of the biggest um, barriers beyond the politics that we're seeing right now is curriculums that teachers have to teach. So like they have a, a portion time that they teach in, right? So we have been able to create a curriculum in which we know they're going to be able to teach it because we have experience with creating curriculums for the public schools in particular. So my hope is that this really does get taught, that this gets embraced and we're bringing it to the biggest social studies conference in the fall. It sounds very earnest, but, you know, having children and Don does too, like that's where it all starts. Obviously, that's a super obvious statement, but we need to start teaching history in this way. And it needs to be it needs to be centered as well. So all that we can do in that area, you know, we're, we're really passionate about that at Frontline. So, Rainey, you are only the second executive producer of Frontline in the series history. And uh, I, b- I believe the, the, the series is close to 40 years old. Is that is that accurate? 40 this year. David, David right. Fanning established established Frontline and you took over for him in 2000. What year? Six years ago. Six years ago. OK. How do you. That's a heavy mantle. So you're building upon an established legacy, but you also want to you want to grow, you want to expand, you want to, uh, uh, you know, diversify essentially the offerings to ever changing audiences. How does that um, how do you balance sort of those two mandates? I don't really see it as two mandates. You know, I think that's a misperception, actually, because I get asked this a lot. I thought it was my charge when I took over Frontline to lead Frontline in the way that I thought was righteous and equitable. So, of course, journalism is at our center, but that also necessitated diversifying Frontline. So I thought and I believe to this day that it would have been much harder to actually stay in the legacy form. And so I just felt so motivated to lead Frontline in a way that I think is equitable and in contemporary. And so that meant hiring new people, new filmmakers, new people who would tell our stories. And it strengthened us so greatly. 
and I only see strength, you know, and I'm just getting started. That's the other thing. I feel like I'm just starting to, to really reach my stride to understand what we need to do and to have leaders around me. You know, I really lead with other people like Don and many others. I love to bring people into Frontline who can help me lead Frontline um, in a stronger way to do, you know, just do the journalism that we need to do and, and, and center the voices. You know, one of the things that I have seen when we um, premiered the installation, the physical installation for Unresolved, um, some of the people who were most comfortable with that form of storytelling and most engaged were young people. Yeah. And and I, I really took note of that. My son was there with his friends. They really, really responded to this form of storytelling. Um, and what I was thinking, watching them engage with the material is there were no shortcuts in the journalism. There were no gimmicks. Right. Um, it was it was just a way of telling the story in a, in a different format that really was reaching. And my hope is, you know, they're going to say, what is that? They're going to then go to the website and be intrigued there. And then some of them will watch, you know, the traditional documentary. But watching them consume the media. And I think this is something that, that Rainey's, Rainey's administration frontline is doing really well, is not being afraid to try new things, not being intimidated by, you know, and both of us, Rainey and I discussed, like, we're visual filmmakers. What is this podcast business that, <laughs> that you're, you're doing? It's a different it's a different skill set, you know, like listening and, and editing that way. Um, you know, like you can't just pick up a scene and move it down a timeline. You have to re-record the whole thing. That was news to me. Um, so yeah, and you can't just cut and paste a piece of audio and, and, and call it a podcast. I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but you certainly hit the jackpot with James Edwards because his, he makes that, podcast so immediate personal and yet also uh grounded uh you know in the gravitas of the journalism and of the historical record and and i think it was really exciting to work with james and the podcast team and to gain such a respect for the podcast form um as an editor what it forces you to do is focus really intently on what your each draft is you can't drop in and come out you have to listen to the entire thing and give your feedback as a whole that's actually a good exercise for any type of you know documentary filmmaking documentary creation so um you know i engaging in something new i think i'm going to take some of those skills that are developing mm -hmm. and apply them to filmmaking you know to visual filmmaking Rainey, has it been determined yet how many uh, frontline episodes will be uh, devoted to uh, Unresolved when it airs in the fall? So it's a big film. Um, and like I said, it's directed by Yoruba Rishan and Brad Lichstein. And Don is also executing that, which is great. Um, and so it'll be one big film. That's the plan okay. right now. That yep. doesn't mean that we won't do more in the future. Sure. We have ideas for the future. Yep. Um, but for now, we're sticking to this one terrific story, but also with the context and the depth of the reporting, I think it's going to make for an amazing uh, narrative, but really strong, strong film about this issue. 
What is your data telling you about the way people are discovering and engaging with Frontline these days? Um, uh, you know, are they are, are they finding the website first and then the films? Are they in this instance, say the podcast obviously is predating the film, but what what's happening there? So Frontline's audience is so amazingly diverse at the moment. And it's it's really one of the, the most incredible things. So we're seeing our broadcast, the PBS traditional broadcast is holding steady. Mm-hmm. It's not growing. And we know that appointment television right now, you know, a lot of us aren't even watching appointment television anymore. Right. But what we're seeing major growth is in the streaming environment. And so Frontline, fortunately, is in front of the paywall. So we're accessible to all people. This is one of our biggest benefits in a streaming environment. You know, you don't need to have a subscription to Netflix. You can watch Frontline anywhere. You have a streaming, your web, your your laptop, your, you know, desktop, your phone. We have a mobile streaming app that is really, really um, a lot of people watch us on mobile now, which as a filmmaker, I'm like, oh, my God, they're on a phone. But like I got over it because at least they're watching us. Right. Sure. Uh, The other big avenue for people now is on YouTube. We have a million subscribers and, you know, we're noticing that on YouTube, people in their 30s and 40s and 20s are really like they're meeting frontline for the first time on YouTube. That's where they know us. So they don't know us as a traditional TV show. They know us as a streaming documentary film series and they love documentaries. So that's where they're finding us. And it's, it's amazing to see what's happening to us in the streaming environment. It's really, really um, exciting. And we're reaching, as Don said, you know, one of the biggest benefits to these new forms, new storytellers, and, you know, just a more immersive experience in general with both of our films, but also podcasting and others is we're reaching new generations of people. You know, people who've never heard of us, never consumed us, now know who we are and they're getting to know us and they're getting to know us on these terms as opposed to legacy terms, which is really important too, but they're just meeting us for the first time. This is Frontline Today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what's so amazing, too, is the um, just the wealth of content that is accessible through your website also. So when when people do meet you for the first time at your 40th birthday, (laughs) they were able to say, oh, wow, they've done some cool stuff. (laughs) All those years. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time uh, to chat with me about Unresolved. This this project is uh, really just so valuable and so informative and enlightening and inspiring. The podcast is out in the world now. I believe three episodes have dropped. Listeners can find that wherever you listen to any of your podcasts. The website, the interactive website, uh, can be accessed through pbs.org. Where can people find out about where the installation will be traveling? So on Frontline, we have an unresolved website that tells you where the installation will be coming and look for new places in the fall. We're really going to start in the fall to bring the installation into the country. So you'll start to see new places pop up on the website coming up soon. Excellent. Well, I've been I've been speaking with Rainey Aronson Rath, the executive producer of Frontline and Don Porter, the executive producer of Unresolved. Thank you both again. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, what is coming up next from each of you. I know it's going to be great. Thanks so much. It was great being here. Thanks again.